Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner here in the Surety Law Group at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by my special guest, Mr. Jacinto J. Cabello. Jay is the division manager for surety with the uh, Vertex companies in the Dallas office, and he's joining us uh, today from Irving, Texas. Uh, Jay, say hello to everybody. Hey, good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. So Jay's an engineer. He earned his uh, bachelor's and, um, and master's degree in civil engineering from the uh, University of Colorado. He's a surety consultant with expertise in preparation of cost to complete, uh, surety completion analysis, and construction claims analysis. Jay's experience in the construction industry includes work on federal, public, commercial, and residential projects. And during his tenure with Vertex, he's worked on over 100 construction projects. Of course, everyone knows Vertex. Vertex is a forensic engineering, construction, environmental consulting company with offices all over the country and even internationally. So, uh, again, welcome, Jay. We're pleased that you uh, were able to join us today, and we wanted to let everyone know that we have a PowerPoint presentation that you can download and follow along with if you want to. Uh, it's not necessary. In other words, the presentation is not going to be um, based on that, but you can, and you, you can download it and look at it later. Uh, the link to the PowerPoint was provided earlier in the uh, email announcements and on social media, but for now you can go to, uh, to www.wcslaw.com, that's our website, uh, forward slash surety-today forward slash. Uh, when you get there, um, you, know, you can just put that into a Google search or your URL bar uh, in your browser, and that will take you to the Surety Today page. Uh, scroll down a little bit there, you'll see the announcement for today's presentation and then click on Access the Presentation, and, then, and you'll have the PowerPoint at that point. If you have any trouble getting the link to work or if you have any other technical issues, then send an email to uh, Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt at wcslaw.com. So as you know, as everyone knows, the program is offered only to in-house claims professionals and is designed to keep the busy claims professionals up to date and informed on surety industry issues. We appreciate uh, your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, if you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations, our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today, and uh, on our microsite, suretytoday.net. So typically, you would also be able to read a, a written white paper uh, of the presentation on the website or the Surety Today microsite, but uh, today we've got the PowerPoint instead. If you have any um, suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. Uh, we've muted the line, as always, during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and then we'll unmute it at the end for questions. Also today, something a little different, we're, we're uh, going to be taking questions anonymously during the presentation by email. So if you have a question, email it to me at mstover at wcslaw.com, and then we'll try to get it answered during the presentation or at the end, and we won't say who asked the question. Uh, today we are going to talk about key factors in closing out a project. We have probably all had the situation where 
you know, the principal goes out of business, leaving one or more projects almost finished but not quite. And so the surety, you know, the surety you got to come in and finish the work, close out the job. Uh, or, you know, the surety's taken over the job at some other stage and eventually gets to the point where the work is completed and it's time to close out the job. Sometimes those last few activities, getting to that finish line, can be really tough and long and difficult to accomplish. So uh, that's why it's important to plan and prepare for closing out the job. And Jay is here as our expert to tell us how to do it. So Jay, lead us off by, you know, telling us what those key factors are in closing out a job in general and sort of give us an overview of what we're going to try to discuss today. Certainly. Thank you, Mike. So when we get into a situation where we get brought onto a project uh, that's either approaching a closeout phase or uh, even in the middle of a closeout phase, uh, we look at it from three key factors, um, and we organize it uh, looking at three key factors. Those three key factors are uh, what are the contractual obligations, um, what resources do you have available or do you need in order to complete the closeout, and what are the schedule constraints and uh, schedule durations that you need to anticipate in a closeout. So those three key factors, again, are contractual obligations, uh, resources, and a schedule. Okay, so, so one of the key factors generally was the contract obligations. Let's, let's drill down on that category a little bit. What are some of the contract obligations that we need, that the surety needs to be concerned about for closing out the project? Certainly. So the contractual obligations include uh, contract provisions. You know, those are provisions that are stipulated within the contract uh, explicitly most often. Uh, plans and specifications, you know, the specifications provide the details on the closeout requirements. And most often as well, uh, industry standards, you know, what, uh, what common materials or what common, common documents you need to anticipate uh, as part of the closeout as well. Okay, so let's, let's push forward then and, and get into some of those, those contract obligations that we need to be aware of. So some of those contract obligations and, and contract provisions, uh, the key components of those would be uh, TCO and CO certificates or substantial completion, uh, one or the other. Um, punch list so TCO, you're talking about temporary uh, certificates of occupancy or certificates of occupancy? Correct, correct. Um, punch list, what uh, obligations do you have to complete the punch list to get the project to a final completion status? Uh, startup and testing reports training and commissioning reports, attic stock requirements or uh, spare parts materials, uh, as-built, uh, that would be the project plans, um, operation and maintenance manuals, warranty, both subcontractor and general contractor warranties, uh, lead requirements, if there are any, on the specific subject project, and lien releases to, again, achieve uh, final completion with the uh, release of any uh, potential liens moving forward. Okay, so so those are sort of that's sort of an overview. Let's take let's take a look at some of these uh, some of these specific items and talk about them in a little more detail. Uh, let's look at uh, you know the, the the certificates of occupancy, substantial completion, uh, and the punch list. So uh, oftentimes the uh, temporary certificate of occupancy or substantial completion certificates are uh, awarded shortly after the uh, majority of the scope of work is completed. So when, a, uh, when an owner can either partially uh, utilize the building or begin to occupy the building, uh, these essentially matter to us because it releases 
uh, oftentimes releases LD provisions um, and allows us to proceed without any LDs being incurred. Those are, uh, since those are usually achieved after the scope of work is completed, we, for this presentation we'll focus mostly on the punch list. So once you've been awarded a substantial completion certificate or TCO or CO certificates, then you'll enter a punch list phase. That'll be the brunt of our uh, conversation moving forward. So punch list are predecessor requirements uh, that are required to achieve a final completion of a project. Uh, Mike, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, no. Yeah, let's move into, I mean, what I would say on the certificate of occupancy, it's, it's really important to figure out, you know, when you're coming into the job as the surety, figure out where that is and, and track it down if it hasn't been issued and get it issued if you can. Because as, uh, as Jay said, it does, in, in most jurisdictions, it stops the LD clock because once you've reached substantial completion, most jurisdictions hold that you can't uh, continue to assess liquidated damages because substantial completion generally means, you know, you can use and occupy the building. So, uh, yeah, so let's, let's continue on with looking at the punch list. Okay. So assuming that substantial completion has been achieved and you're now in the punch list uh, evaluation phase, where do you start with your punch list um, respective to the contract provisions? So we want to clarify that once you get into a punch list, it's critical that you understand the punch list process. Um, are there several punch lists? You know, would that be an architect versus a general contractor punch list uh, or an owner-driven punch list? Um, again, to that point, what is a punch list process? Um, you need to understand the durations uh, and the completion time that's allotted for the punch list. So once a architect issues a punch list, do you have 10 days to remediate the issues or do you have five days to remediate those issues? So again, those are items that would require uh, a duration component and also your obligation to meet those requirement deadlines. Uh, identify any scope holes. Um, identifying any scope holes is really pertinent to uh, any items that are being self-performed by a principal. So as Mike mentioned originally, uh, if a principal has de defaulted and been terminated and potentially no longer solvent, what items were they completing that were now part of the punch list? That would result in a scope hole since you no longer have a contract, subcontractor excuse me, to complete those items. So it's, it's imminent that you identify any scope holes uh, in order to get those filled uh, respective to the punch list. Uh, additionally, identify any lean, long lead items or potential exposure items. Uh, do you have tile that has to be uh, imported from a different uh, part of the world? Um, if so, it's imminent that you uh, order those in advance so that uh, you don't draw out the completion of the punch list. Uh, and then lastly, you know, it's, it's, never, uh, uh, it's never impossible, but sometimes you can even offer a, 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 a credit for the punch list. We call that monetizing the punch list. Uh, offer a credit uh, in order to close out some of those completion punch list items uh, moving forward. So those are kind of the initial evaluation of a punch list and how to proceed or uh, enter into a punch list evaluation. Right. We, 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 we call that monetizing, the, you know, buying out the punch list work. Uh, and, and punch list can really be a problem, and, and sureties, I'm sure everyone on the line has had this issue. Finding people to come in and do this work, if the principal is out of business, it, it can be really tough. Getting the subs and suppliers to get back to do, you know, small items is really tough. And, and we had, a, you, you mentioned, you know, a general contractor, owner, architect punch list. We had one on the condo situation where you have the, the unit owner also generating punch lists. So it can be a problem. And you really need to uh, try to nail down what is the punch list and, and get it 
in an agreement, in, in the takeover agreement, if you're doing that, or, or, or you know, whatever, whatever uh, approach you're going to take, really try to pin down, you know, the obligee on what is the punch list so that you don't have this ever-growing and, and, you know, changing list. So, uh, so Jay, con- continue on looking at some of these other issues with the punch list. So some of the other things that we run into are um, defining the actual punch list in accordance with the contract specifications. Um, one thing you want to do is thoroughly review the contract, again, to identify how many punch lists there are. Uh, as Michael indicated, um, you know, it, it can be as simple as one single architect-driven punch list, or there can be multiple entities that are involved in the punch list, uh, starting with the general contractor all the way to the owner-occupant, potentially. So how many punch lists are there? Uh, what is the timing of those punch list review? And then finally, and, and most importantly, who is the authority or who had the authority to uh, sign off uh, on the punch list items? Again, that's critical so that uh, you can ultimately define when the punch list uh, item has been satisfied uh, in order to complete that closeout. Yeah. How often do you see these, these issues really addressed, you know, in the contract documents themselves? You know, unfortunately, with a more sophisticated uh, entity, we, we see it quite often, but more often than not, we do deal with contracts that are silent in identifying the punch list protocol. So one of the things that we recommend immediately if, if, uh, if a surety is brought onto a project in a punch list phase is that you immediately identify that punch list protocol. Um, if it's not stipulated in the contract, then, you know, we always call a meeting uh, in order to identify those key components. Are there multiple versions? Are there multiple parties that are allowed to produce punch lists? Um, and then ultimately, again, who is the authority or who has the authority to approve of punch list items, uh, that being inspect and approve them. Right. Okay. So uh, what are, just closing out our discussion on, on the punch list, what are some other issues uh, that you've come across? So some of the issues um, are identifying whether the punch lists are punitive. You know, are you up against a owner or architect whose expectations are uh, excessive or unrealistic? Um, are there lead items included in the punch list that, uh, you know, require a special protocol uh, in order to achieve that? And then is there excessive remedial work? Um, you know, drawing the line between punch list and remedial work uh, is, is pretty critical since, you know, there are some contract balances there that could be argued as an overpayment defense uh, for remedial work. One example we have is we had a project where uh, the exterior insulation, the EFIS system, uh, was left exposed for some time uh, without the uh, exterior barrier being completed. And the insulation itself, actually, the thermal capacity of the insulation was depleted due to exposure to the uh, uh, to the elements. So that would require remedial work. Um, and our argument in that case was that was not punchless work, but that was actual incomplete work, which had been paid for in full. So our defense there was that uh, there was an overpayment clause there as opposed to uh, actual punchless work. So that's one of the uh, uh, one of the common factors that we run into or common argument items that we uh, encounter uh, on bigger projects, Mike. Right. So I, I literally on Friday I just got a, a new case in for a surety and and you know they they had already gotten the consultant. They went down and 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 looked at the project and met the architect. And right away it was clear from the punch list and the, the way the architect was conducting the the walkthrough that this was going to be a nightmare trying to get this architect to sign off on anything. And so now we're shifting gears to try to get in touch with the city attorney to try to figure out a way to buy out of this thing because 
dealing with these with these uh, really super critical people that have to be satisfied can be can be a real chore. And there's some case law out there too on on the issue of over inspection, and so you can you can look to that if you get into that situation and, and can't get out. Um, so so I think we've we've covered everything on punch lists. Um, I, I guess there's you know there's some technology that can be used in the punch list phase. Why don't you tell us about that? Of course. So we've seen uh, some of the more again some of the more experienced contractors utilize programs such as Bluebeam and Procore uh, to organize and manage a punch list. Um, if you are brought onto a project early enough to where it makes sense to implement these systems, we certainly recommend it. So these programs allow you to uh, upload a set of plans, share it with subcontractors, uh, mark up the plans and detail the issues, and then also add photos that can be pinned to specific locations. So it's really a good tool to uh, identify the uh, the punch list issues and locate them and their locations, uh, specifically locate their locations relative to the plans. Um, if that's not an option, um, you know, the most, uh, uh, I guess the most course project approach would be to just simply utilize an Excel spreadsheet that uh, uh, potentially includes a photo log along to accompany it as well. Um, so a more sophisticated program would have Bluebeam or Procore. Uh, and again, if it makes sense, incorporate it early on. If not, you know, uh, utilizing a simple uh, Excel spreadsheet to manage that is uh, is oftentimes uh, significant or, or sufficient. Yeah, we had we had a situation where they they went old school. They they went through the the site and they put little pieces of blue tape on things that they wanted to be fixed on the punch list. And so you know, nothing was. What happened then was the you know the the owner occupied the space, started using it, and of course people took down the blue tape. So you'd walk into a room and expecting to see the tape and you didn't see the tape and you're looking around where where are these items so something like this blue beam where you can have the you know the plans showing exactly where something is and then photographs to show you what you're supposed to be looking for can be a heck of a lot better than blue tape <laughs> absolutely yeah so you know you mentioned before about signing off on on punch list and that's key because until it's signed off it's it's really not considered done by the by the abogees right Exactly, and we ran into instances where a sign-off copy or version has been maintained via a hard copy. Um, we certainly don't recommend that just because the the, the final version could get lost, uh, especially with something as critical as, as the punch list to get you through final completion. Uh, we recommend do it electronically, uh, again, via Beam or Plocore software. Um, if you're not capable of doing that or, or at the time you're not allowed to do that, you know, make sure that you're maintaining that uh, uh, that final punch list sign-off sheet, and that you're actually uh, uh, saving an electronic version just for your records. Um, otherwise, you know you're going to be held to uh, uh, to proving that that item was reviewed and accepted and signed off on by the yeah. appropriate authority. Okay, so now, in, in, of course, in, in every job, uh, you've got your plans and your specifications, and um, you know those will contain numerous terms and provisions that relate to closing out the job. So take us through some of the uh, the closeout requirements that you typically run into uh, in the plans and specs that would be relevant here for the sureties to, to be cognizant of. Absolutely. So closing up the punch list, we start to look at the actual documents that need to be supplied, um, that being testing reports uh, or simply inspections. So first thing you want to do is you want to set up a closeout tracking log. 
Um, this allows you to track all of the specifications and the specification requirements uh, for each pertinent scope of work. Um, so one of the first things that you encounter uh, on a closeout or the requirements of a closeout is your startup and testing reports. Uh, so startup and testing is typically detailed within the specifications, um, but you also have to include both project specs and manufacturer specifications. So oftentimes the specs alone, the project specs alone won't detail what those startup and testing requirements are, so you have to refer to manufacturer specifications. Uh, this is a little bit more common in uh, more of an industrial setting uh, for a project and a lot less likely on a residential or development project. So such items as uh, pipe inspections for utilities, uh, making sure that piping was installed properly and there's proper flow, uh, pressure testing for gas and water lines, and then testing load output for generators. So again, startup and testing uh, reports uh, are the first set of documents that, uh, that you should look to uh, as part of the closeout requirements. Now, the, the surety should be aware that, that, that this is highly specialized stuff, and, and so when they get a consultant on board, this isn't something that, you know, the Vertex is going to be out there doing. This is something that somebody's going to have to be hired to come out and do, right? Correct, correct. So some of these items, um, some of these, some subcontractors, sophisticated subcontractors have uh, certified uh, personnel that can perform the startup and testing. Um, however, oftentimes they don't, so you have to engage a third-party uh, inspection or, or startup firm that, uh, you know, is capable and competent and can provide the, uh, uh, the specifications or the documents per the specifications. Yeah, I can tell you we had a job one time where there was a huge concrete footers and they had, uh, they had uh, HDPE pipes going through these footers to hold a place for tensioning cables. And when they came time to go do the, uh, the, the video scope through the pipes, they found that several of them had been crushed and they had to tear the whole thing down and start over. It could be it could be a mess. Some of these uh, you know these closeout things that pop up. So looking next after you know the the, the startup and testing, you've got uh, training and commissioning. Again, again, so training and commissioning is something that uh, typically has to be provided by a certified uh, third-party commissioning agent. Uh, so training would be if you have specialized equipment. Um, oftentimes, these specifications require. Uh, that a certain number of hours uh, and certain personnel uh, on the owner side be trained uh, to specifically operate and or maintain the equipment. Uh, commissioning is uh, required by a third-party commissioning agent uh, who, again, is certified and unbiased uh, and can provide those commissioning reports for each of the uh, systems. Uh, this is commonly seen in HVAC systems, electrical equipment, uh, plumbing systems, and more commonly today on building envelope systems on, on a little bit more of these sophisticated systems that are being implemented these days. Right, right. Okay, one of the uh, one of the things that you mentioned early on was attic stock. So t tell us about that. Yes, so attic stock um, or spare parts, um, again, is uh, often found as a contractual requirement. Um, this, uh, specifically the attic stock, uh, is project-specific items. So you'll see a lot more attic stock requirements for a, uh, let's say, a wastewater treatment facility, which includes pumps and such, uh, as opposed to a hospital where uh, your attic stock will more likely be ceiling grid tiles, for example. So keep in mind that it's project-specific. So each project you have to familiarize yourself with the attic stock requirements. Um, determine whether it's a sub or a vendor responsibility. Is this something that the sub is responsible for procuring, or is this something that you have to go down the line to a vendor to provide? Um, much like the punch list, you should be aware of any long lead items 
um, long lead times or the availability of certain items. Again, if you have to provide uh, spare tiles that are manufactured uh, or that are produced across overseas, um, anticipate having to order those in advance. Delivery and storage as well. Um, sometimes the projects will require that you provide uh, off-site delivery and storage. So if you, uh, this is something where if you aren't paying attention, you can have the IDEX stock delivered to the project only to find that it should be delivered to an off-site storage facility, uh, even though it's explicitly detailed in the plans. That could be a costly error. Um, and then warranty claims and restock. Um, oftentimes during the warranty period, if there's a warranty claim item, it's your responsibility to restock those attic stock or spare parts that were used in the warranty uh, claim. So uh, familiarity itself with that is pretty important since some of these items could be costly items uh, and could be your responsibility. All right, okay, so switching now to the next topic um, that you find in plans and specs for closing out is, is the requirement for as-built drawings. So tell us about those and, and what are some of the issues there. So some of the issues we run into with as-built drawings are uh, what requirements are detailed within the, again, plan specs. Um, should you provide hard copies versus digital copies? Um, how many numbers of sets should you provide? Is this something where you should provide multiple sets or is it simply uh, uh, one set that goes to the architect? Um, what are the uh, AutoCAD versus PDF? So is, are you providing a native file or are you providing a final PDF file? Um, oftentimes we see AutoCAD files are required simply so they can be manipulated and reviewed. Um, do you need to provide one set that has the overlays from all of the trades or do you need to provide uh, as-built drawings for each individual trade? If you can imagine the nightmare in trying to collect as-built from several multiple trades and then trying to combine them into one single uh, overlay uh, as-built set. And then also out-of-date formats. Um, we've been involved in projects where uh, the project has lasted several years. Uh, when you commenced the project, you were using one set of format, but by the end of the project, you've implemented a different program that requires you to go back and update or uh, essentially sometimes even redo your, uh, your original as-built in order to fit the latest formats. So the big question here is, do you have all your as-built? Have they been adequately maintained? Um, if they have not, what cost or what resources do you need in order to recreate those as-builds? Um, in a best-case scenario, you've got a sophisticated parties that have been updating those and have maintained them. In a worst-case scenario, uh, and sometimes nearly impossible, you have to come back and recreate. You can imagine trying to recreate a set of as-builds after your walls have been closed in um, and your project has been finalized is, is next to impossible, if not nearly impossible. Yeah, that's when you start breaking out the infrared cameras and <laughs> metal detectors trying to find pipes and wires. Uh, so moving on to the next uh, closing out requirement from plans and specs that we, that we see all the time is the O&M manuals. What are some of the issues there? Great. So the next section is considered somewhat more of an administrative practice. Um, O&M manuals is simply just collecting uh, all the required operations and maintenance manuals for any equipment that was incorporated into the project, uh, equipment or materials, excuse me. Um, so again, oftentimes determining whether those O&M manuals were collected from vendors, uh, subcontractors, um, is, is kind of the critical component here. So again, an O&M value manual uh, checkoff list that goes through and identifies what's required and whether it's been submitted and approved is, is critical in order to just keep this organized or keep this exercise organized. Right. Okay, so at the beginning we talked about the contract obligations, plans and specs, and, and one of the issues is resources. So let's, let's focus in, on, on that. 
and uh, and tell us uh, you know what's what's important in this category for for the surety to be aware of. Correct. So we, as far as resources, we like to emphasize you know when you're getting into the uh, completion of the project, what resources do you have available, or what resources does it require to complete the project? Uh, project files and documents. Uh, are, are your first set of resources, you know, the organization of those files, uh, the completeness of those files, um, that's critical in order to be able to complete the closeout. Uh, manpower, what manpower resources do you have available? If there was a large turnout of personnel during the completion of this project, um, you could see the complexity there as opposed to having one project manager that's completely familiar with the project. Um, so determining whether there's going to be several elements or several personnel there that you have to engage versus one is, is one critical component. Additionally, the availability of any knowledgeable personnel. Um, if you do have any personnel that are knowledgeable in the project and can assist you in the closeout, are they available to help out or have they moved on to other projects? Um, if you have to engage a third party uh, expert in order to help out with closeout, testing, balancing and such, you know, are they available, what's their schedule look like, and uh, how soon can they start, and what durations would they require to complete this. And then yeah, and I'm sure you've had the situation where you've, you've got those key key people and you need them, and, and then, you know, if they're moving on and the principal's going out of business, you know, you can, you can offer them bonuses to stick around or you can work with their new employers to try to get time, get them, you know, back onto the job and pay the new employer. You, you've utilized those kinds of methods, I'm sure. Correct. Those are certainly options. Um, we've gone to the extent of 1099ing uh, ex-employees um, under our vertex, just that we have that uh, uh, that availability moving forward. Um, you can imagine, you know, knowledge transfer. Uh, when a lot of these project managers maintain this information to themselves, it's a lot more difficult to get someone else on board to reproduce that. So it, it might be costly, but sometimes it makes sense in the long run uh, on a cost-benefit uh, scenario or analysis. Right. Um, but to that last point, you know, one thing that, you know, also you want to take into consideration is contract funds and retention. You know, did the owner or obligee withhold sufficient uh, funds uh, in order to help uh, finalize this project? And if so, uh, making that sure that those funds are avail readily available to you if you have to bring on another subcontractor or a vendor uh, to provide added stock or to complete punch list items um, or complete testing and balancing of any systems. Okay, we're up. We're up against our time. I know one of the last things we wanted to touch on, uh, Jay, was schedule. So, so talk to you, uh, you know a little bit about that before we close out. <laughs> Correct. So, one thing that often is overlooked is the schedule for project closeout. Um, there's two prongs to the schedule, or the concerns with the schedule is what is your availability to complete the project. You know, if this was a school and you have to have it open by the school season, you've got a very limited window there to, uh, uh, or a very detailed window there to complete the punch list. And the second is the duration uh, of the closeout. You know, oftentimes we see subcontractors uh, grossly exhaust their general conditions portion uh, for the closeout just because closeout takes substantially longer than uh, they would have anticipated. So making sure that you know what the schedule calls for, what schedule requirements are for the closeout, and having realistic expectation for those durations uh, of each closeout component as well are, are highly critical in our opinion. Right, right. All right, well, <clears throat> thank you again, Jay. And uh, before I open up the line for any questions, I wanted to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, February 11th at uh, 1230 Eastern Time. 
And I'll be joined by another special guest, Mr. Todd Caslow with Caslow and Fields, and we'll be discussing uh, salvage and recovery issues. So some upcoming events in the surety industry, the, uh, of course, the ABA FSLC uh, midwinter meeting is going to be January 16th through the 19th this week in San Diego. I'll be out there. Be sure to say hi. The Philadelphia Surety Claims Association lunch is the following week at, uh, on January 23rd in Philadelphia. The Atlanta Surety Claims lunch will be on February 7th. And again, uh, uh, thanks to everyone for joining us today. And, and Jay and I want to wish everyone, of course, a happy new year. And we look forward uh, to speaking to you again uh, next month. So let me um, open up the lines, Jay, and see if we have any questions. 